We should be very careful about artificial intelligence. We are summoning the demon. Hey, welcome back to Babylon Singularity. I am your host, Peter Herter. The last few episodes, we've been digging into the book of Daniel. The last episode, I tried to connect some of those dots. Um, Today, we're going to be making the leap into the New Testament. You might be wondering what my method is here. I often wonder the same thing. Um, My initial concept was to hit the high points in the Bible, at least the high points as far as I could see them from where I'm standing. And so we started out in the garden and we learned about Satan's duping of Adam and Eve with the promise of knowledge, with the promise of intelligence, that that trap led Adam and Eve under the power of the evil one and how that played out in Genesis 11 with the building of the Tower of Babel where human beings again wanted to use their knowledge to reach up into the heavens and create a gateway of the gods. That's what the name Babel actually means, a gateway of the gods. Human beings reaching up into heaven After one thing, they want to dethrone God. Human beings want to enter heaven and dethrone God. They want to sit upon God's throne. It's the same desire that Satan has, is to dethrone God and and take his place. So there's there's a shared desire with the devil and demons and human beings to dethrone God and take his place. So we see the answer to that from God's perspective in Genesis 28, where Jacob has a dream about a staircase that reaches down from heaven, and angels are ascending and descending upon it. Jacob wakes up, says, God is in this place. This is the house of God. This is Bethel. So Bethel is the answer to Babel. Babel is the human reach up into the heavens to take God's place, and Bethel is God's reaching down creating the true staircase, the true entry point, the true gate of God. And what is that gate? What is that gateway? Well, Jesus said to Nathanael that you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So Jesus says, hey, I am the gate of God that Jacob dreamt about. I am the staircase that Jacob encountered in his dream. Jesus Christ is the gate, the gateway of God. Human beings can never reach up and take God's place. They they never can. But Satan will continually attempt to do this until he's imprisoned forever. So that's that's what we're living with now, and that's what we get to see in the Bible so we, we walked through a couple of high points that I, I saw. I spent a little bit of time in Exodus 20, where the first command coming from Sinai is, hey, look, don't simulate what you see in the earth or in, in the heavens or in the sea. Don't simulate it and bow down to it. Don't worship it. 
Don't make an image, don't make a copy, don't make a simulation of what you see in the earth. And then bow down to it as if it is your God. That's the first commandment from Sinai. We spent some time in Joshua 7 and 8, talking about Joshua's campaign as Joshua executed the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the promises to Moses. Joshua was the fulfiller of the promise. And of course, Joshua's Hebrew, the Hebrew name Joshua is Yeshua. So Joshua was the fulfiller of the promises. And it just so happens that there's an incredible parallel in the Old Testament to what we read in the book of Revelation. And those parallels are found in many different places, but there's some startling parallels found in the book of Joshua, especially when you compare Revelation 19, which tells about the beast and the false prophet meeting Jesus at his return, meeting in a field of battle the battle of Armageddon and Jesus destroying the armies of the beast and the false prophet and throwing the beast and the false prophet into a fiery pit. We find a startling parallel of that in Joshua 7 and 8, in Joshua's campaign against Ai where all of the city of Ai went out to meet Joshua on a field of battle. Joshua took a javelin and points it at the city. Now that javelin is also paralleled in Revelation 19, because when it says in Revelation 19 that a sword proceeds out of the mouth of Jesus and with it he strikes the nations, the more accurate translation isn't sword, it's a Thracian javelin. We find a javelin coming out of the mouth of Jesus in Revelation 19, and we find a javelin in the hands of Joshua in Joshua 7 and 8. We spent some time on those parallels, and then we moved in to Psalm 2 talked a little bit about the rage of the nations, how the nations rage against God, how they come up with plans and devise schemes to go to war with God. And, and what's their contention? What are they so mad about? What are, they, what are they so worked up about? They're mad about who God has placed in charge. They're mad about who he has placed as the king in Zion. So this rage of the nation, the rage of the nations, is the rage that we find in Revelation 12 of the dragon who makes war in heaven, is defeated and cast down to the earth and rages against God with one thing on his mind, to take God's throne and to take as many human beings with him on this quest as he can. So then we went into Daniel, spent some time there, some very important prophecies 
that reverberate throughout the New Testament, an incredibly important place to spend time, the book of Daniel. We zeroed in on the fourth kingdom, the fourth empire, revealed in Daniel 2 in a statue that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about, a statue of gold and, and silver and bronze and iron and iron and clay. Those five empires would rule. The gold of Babylon, the silver of Persia, the bronze of Greece, the legs of iron, which is Rome, and then right at the very end, the iron takes on an element of clay. There's a mixture of iron and clay. I believe that that is telling us that Rome, the Roman Republic, that began with Ramus and Romulus in the ancient Latin peninsula with the founding of Rome, the founding of a democratic republic, that that empire has been ruling for thousands of years. It's taken on different forms. It fell in the West, continued within the East, resurged in the West with the United States of America, and will continue to crescendo, and it will be that empire that Jesus destroys at his return. The legs of Rome carry all the way through the rest of human history, but at the very end, it takes on a characteristic of iron and clay. That tells us that trans, we should expect transhumanism, the mixture of iron technology and clay biology is coming. So at the very end, the Roman Republic will take on a transhuman nature. And it will be that transhuman, transhumanism that will be shattered at the return of Jesus. The Bible tells us that iron and clay do not mix, but that doesn't mean we're not going to try to mix biology with metal. We also saw that reality playing out in Daniel 7 with the fourth beast, a beast that was terrifying, and that beast was made out of metal. It was made out of iron. It had iron teeth, and it had bronze claws. But it wasn't just metal that that beast was made out of. It was also made out of ten horns, which were human kings. So there was a mixture of metal and men. This fourth terrifying beast is a mixture of technology and humanity together, balled up into one, the mixture of iron and clay. Daniel 7 also talks about a little horn that will come up and take the place of three of those kings and speaks great thing against, things against the, the Most High God. We, we talked about Daniel 11, where it tells us the nature of this little horn. He is an atheist. He opposes every so-called God. But he also honors the God of fortresses. 
What is the God of fortresses? The God of fortresses is a new God. It's an alien God that is that the, the Little Horn's fathers never knew. So this is a God that is new on the scene. It's alien. No one's ever heard of it. And it gives real world help to the Antichrist. The God of fortresses isn't a concept. It's not um, an idea or a pretend um, belief. It's, it's, a, it's an entity that helps the Antichrist overcome the strongest fortresses, the strongest resistance against him and his plan. It is this God of fortress God of fortresses that the Antichrist delivers the economic power of the world over to. So we spent time talking about the, the little horn and then we also we we we, we jumped into Daniel nine where we talked about the 70 weeks, the period of time where God will accomplish these, his agenda list for the world, for his glory, for heaven. An agenda list that includes the completion of the transgression. Well, what's the transgression? Well, the law that was given to Moses needed to be fully transgressed. And the ones that were going to transgress it were the Jewish people. The law was given to Moses on Sinai. Moses cannot even get down to the bottom of the mountain before those laws are shattered. He basically throws them to the ground. Why does he throw them to to the ground? Because he hears a noise. What was the noise? The noise was of people worshiping a golden cow. These are people who were told to sit and chill for a bit while Moses goes up the mountain and talks to the uncreated living God. Like, look, folks, just chill for a little bit. I'll be right back down. I'm going to talk to God. Try not to do anything stupid. Got it, Moses. We won't do anything stupid. Great. Perfect. I'll be right back. I'll tell you what's going on. Well, what do they do? They do what human beings do. They do incredibly stupid things. Incredibly stupid things. Because why do they do it? Because they think that incredibly stupid thing is a good idea. That's what humans are really good at. Humans are really good at taking incredibly stupid ideas and making them sound like a good idea. That's what the golden calf was. That was only the beginning of the transgression. Well, that transgression, that transgression of the law would continue and escalate. And not just with the worship of a golden calf, but that transgression would turn into the rejection and killing of God's messengers, the prophets. Prophets like Jeremiah. Prophets like Zechariah. Prophets that came to Israel time and time again with the word of God, with the message of God. 
They're just the messenger. They're just, they're just saying what God told them to say. And what is Israel's response? They reject the word of God. And not only that, they kill the messenger. Well, this goes on so long until finally Jesus arrives. And here is the son of God. And Jesus's message to the religious leaders of the Jews was complete the transgression, complete what your father started. Your father started killing the prophets. Now it's your turn to complete it. You're going to fill up the full measure of what was begun by them. How are they going to do it? They're going to do it by rejecting the word of God made flesh. They're going to do it by rejecting his truth and delivering him over to Rome to be crucified. It was this transgression, this completion of the transgression that would lead to the atonement, the once and for all atonement of the Lamb of God sacrificed for the sin of the world. And so we read about God's agenda list in Daniel chapter 9 with the 70 weeks. That gives us a springboard actually to, to jump now in to where I want to spend some time in this episode, Luke 21. This is where I want to, uh, want to camp out in this episode, Luke 21, but it's going to take a little bit of um, context to understand what's going on. When we examining Jesus's teaching on what is called the Mount of Olives Discord or the Olivet Discourse. But before we jump into that, I'm just I'm going to uh, just ask the Lord for his blessing on, on this episode. Lord, we look to you. We look to your word. God, we look to the life that you bring to us, the light that you fill us with. You drive out our darkness. God, we lay down our agendas, what we want to bring to this episode, God. And, and I ask you, Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, have your way. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is sure and that it will accomplish all that you have sent it out to accomplish. And we want to join with you. We want to agree with you. We want to receive from you, Lord. We ask you to plant your seeds deep into us and find good ground, that we might bear much fruit for your glory, that we might do your will and be filled with all the fruit of the Spirit, that your love would prevail in our lives that you, Jesus, alone would be the consuming passion of our existence. We want to drink deep from your word, God. Spirit, lead us, guide us, teach us. Help us to hear you. Help us to speak your word and honor you. Have your way. We look to you. We adore you. In the name of Jesus, amen.
So as Jesus is entering into the final leg of his earthly ministry, he is certain that he will be rejected and he is certain that he will be killed and he is certain that he will rise again and be seated at the right hand of power forever. These things are absolutely 100% established in Jesus' thinking, in the way he speaks. And so we can see the, the truths of Daniel 9, the truths of God's agenda list being in the forefront of of Jesus' mind. And, and here's what I'm talking about. If you open up your Bible to Luke 19, verse 41, this is Jesus' response to a city that he knows will reject him and will kill him. Verse 41. When Jesus drew near this and saw the city, the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from you, hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is literally weeping over Jerusalem. Mourning the fact that he is coming with terms of peace that God is coming to Jerusalem with terms of peace. An hour where they, all they had to do was reach out and receive the gift of grace and mercy and truth embodied in their Messiah, the Son of God. But it was hidden from their eyes. And because they couldn't see it, because they couldn't see the day of visitation, Jesus promised another day, a visitation of wrath, a visitation of vengeance. Jesus was coming, and the day of visitation of peace, the terms of peace, were being offered but Jerusalem's eyes would not be opened. His offer would be hidden from them. They would not recognize the moment that it was right in front of them. So instead, Jesus promises them another visitation, a day when the enemies of Jerusalem would set up a barricade around them and tear them all the way down to the ground everyone within, even the children, not leaving one stone left upon another. Why would this happen? Because they didn't recognize the time 
of the visitation of the Prince of Peace. So this understanding that arises from Daniel's chapter 9, the prophecies of Daniel 9, of the fulfillment, the completion of the transgression, leading to the execution of the Messiah, leading to vengeance upon Jerusalem, plays heavily into Jesus' thinking and into his speaking to the religious leaders of Jerusalem and also to his disciples. And that's what we're going to get into next. Go ahead and turn over to Luke 21. Now, it should be said that the Olivet Discourse is recorded in three out of the four gospel accounts. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Gospel of John doesn't really record this account. So why am I why am I zeroing in on Luke 21? That's actually a good question. Maybe that's a question that you weren't even asking yourself. But but here's here's why I'm starting with Luke 21. I may at some point come back and um, look at uh, Matthew 24 and Mark, I think it's 13, um, where there's different um, nuanced um, uh, accounts of this teaching to the disciples on the Mount of Olives. The reason I'm zeroing in on Luke is because Luke went out of his way to give an orderly account. He knew, Luke knew the other accounts. He was aware of other accounts of what happened in the life of Jesus. But if you read in, in Luke chapter 1, and I'll, I'll just read it here real, really quickly, just so that you understand why I'm zeroing in on it. Luke says, he's a physician, he's a doctor, so he's... he's He's accustomed to um, meticulous notes. He's accustomed to researching things and having a good grasp before you put them down and, and put them down on paper, right? And so this is, this is Luke's strong suit, is to make sure the recording is orderly and proper and in, in, in basically in good order. So... If any of the gospel writers between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would say, okay, who's going to have the most orderly account of what's going on in the life of Jesus and in the teachings of Jesus? We would have to say, well, Luke is going to have the most orderly account. And so that's why I'm starting that. And, and the reason I'm saying that is because if you look in Luke chapter one, right off the bat, he says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, meaning many have undertaken, um, undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have, have, have been accomplished. Many have been writing about the, the teachings and the ministry of Jesus. There's been many accounts of Jesus, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, 
most excellent Theophilus. So Luke's entire intent is to take the eyewitness accounts the best that he can and give the most orderly account. And so that's why I, I'm starting in Luke 21. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean Mark 13 or, or Matthew 24 are flawed. It doesn't it just means that if we want the most orderly account, we're gonna start with Luke. And that's where I'm starting. And that's my thinking. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's that's where where I'm I'm just gonna kind of plant my feet, move from from move on from here. Um, and then if if you know, if I feel like it's the right, then then go back and 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 get into Mark the the accounts in Mark and also the account in in Matthew twenty four because each of the accounts are a little bit different. They all say things say basically the same thing, but they say it a little bit differently. And so if, if we're not aware of those differences, if we're not aware of those nuances, we can get a, a garbled picture. And so I want to start with Luke's picture and then independently go to and look at Mark's picture and then potentially look at Matthew's picture and then maybe compare and contrast and, and, and consider how, how these different accounts, what, what they might mean. Uh, taken as a whole or, or taken in, in comparati- uh, comparison with each other. I don't know. But I, that was just a really long-winded explanation of why I think I want to start in Luke 21 with the Olivet Discourse because I believe it is the most orderly account of the three. Hopefully that makes sense. So, Luke 21. Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple. So generally how this conversation begins is someone is talking about how grand and glorious the the temple mount is and the architecture and what what a beautiful building and place it is. And Jesus doesn't really go like, yeah, wow, it's really amazing, isn't it? No, he just basically, he basically gets into, yeah, everything you see here is going to be rubble, okay? Everything's going to be torn down to the last stone. He doesn't spend a lot of time on the grand architectural plans of Herod, Herod's temple. Herod was the one who designed and built the temple in his, his day, and it, it was a magnificent temple by all accounts. It doesn't seem like Jesus is very impressed with Herod's temple. It seems that Jesus is more interested in things like the temple being a house of prayer. Makes sense. So, we'll start off in verse 5. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus describes a violent event 
where it's not like, you know, oh, over time, these the, these walls will kind of start to crumble and disrepair. And you know how if you leave something alone for long enough, you know, they start, everything starts falling apart. You know, we live in a fallen world. Things fall apart. No, Jesus is describing something very different. He's saying these walls will be torn down and not just torn down, thrown down. For walls to be thrown down, that means someone has to throw them. That's not something that just happens because a stone falls down. He doesn't say the stones are going to fall down. He says these stones will be thrown down. Well, that, you know, brings up all sorts of questions in the disciples. And so they have a couple of questions. They ask him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? The disciples hear Jesus talking about the walls of Jerusalem being thrown down and that literally there will be no stone left upon another. Naturally, they ask, um, is this going to happen soon? Should we be getting out? of Dodge, uh, when is this going to happen? And what will be the signs of when this happens? And Jesus says, see that you are not led astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, don't be terrified for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So Jesus gives some general warnings about some things and says, hey, anybody who says they're me, don't go after them. And there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and tumults. There's going to be, you know, that's the same stuff that's been going on for a long time. That's going to be going on for a long time. The end is not yet. Jesus then says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be a great earthquake, and in various places famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from the heaven. Jesus tells his disciples, don't worry about the wars and the tumults, the rumors of wars. That's going to be happening for a long time. But there's going to come a time in history when total global war will break out. There will also be massive earthquakes. Not the, not the earthquakes say like, oh, did you feel that? No, that's not, that's not what Jesus has in mind. Jesus has in mind like, Yellowstone letting go, right? Like, like a super volcano, super volcano, like yell that that sits under Yellowstone National Park, erupting, tearing the United States in half. I mean, earthquakes of that magnitude, famines, diseases, terrors, signs in the heavens. Great natural disasters. So Jesus says there will be global war, unprecedented natural disasters, and 
terrifying signs in the heavens. Then Jesus backs up a little bit, says, but before all this, before all what, certainly before the great terrors and signs from heavens, in the heavens, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Jesus describes a time in history when global war will break out, when unprecedented natural disasters will occur, when terrifying signs will be displayed in the sky. But before we get to that last period, there will be one final persecution, a persecution that will be the church's final opportunity to bear witness to Jesus. We, we read these verses and we're like, oh my goodness, what? Uh, we get to be persecuted and killed? And Jesus says, yes, but that's not the main point. The main point is this is your opportunity. So, hey, when they arrest you and you get thrown in prison and you're awaiting trial and they bring you before governors and kings to testify, I don't want you to meditate on what you're going to tell those people. All right? Just forget about it. Think about something else. You can think about think about what heaven's going to be like. Think about the glory of God. Think, think, about what, think about what you're going to eat for lunch. But don't think about what you're going to say when it comes time to testify. Here's why. Because if you say something, if you come up with something, it's, it's not going to be that great. Um, it's going to be kind of boring, and your enemies will be able to contradict it, and they'll be able to say all sorts of things. So just, just don't even consider what you're going to say. Here's why. Because in that moment, when you're standing before those kings, before those ones that want to persecute and kill you, Jesus is going to speak for you. Jesus promises to give us a mouth and wisdom that our adversaries will not be able to withstand or contradict. Jesus says, hey, I'll step in in that moment, and then I'll, I'll take it from there. It's kind of like what we see with Stephen, right, in the book of Acts, where Stephen is standing before a very hostile crowd, a crowd that already doesn't like him. And God gives him an anointed sermon that cuts them to their heart that causes them to gnash their teeth, that they have no answer for, but 
to pick up rocks and start throwing it at Stephen. And Stephen is received into glory forever. This is the way of escape that God is making for the church in the end times. We look at it like, oh my goodness, the what? We're, we got to get killed? Well, bottom line is that unless you make it to the very end when Jesus splits the sky and you see his actual appearing and you're standing on the earth in that hour, it's going to be a very difficult hour to stand. And just, just to say it, just to tell you, that's going to be very difficult to make it to that hour. There, are, there aren't going to be a whole lot of people left that you want to be around on the earth at that hour. So Jesus tells us that they are going to come and we are going to be betrayed by even our own relatives, our brothers and sisters, our friends, our acquaintances will turn on us. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. We will be hated by all for the sake of the name of Jesus. Jesus Christ will be, or already is, the most hated name, but will be so hated that to even cling to the name of Jesus will be thoroughly offensive to a world bent on rebellion against God. Jesus promises we will be hated by all nations for his, his sake, but not a hair of our head will perish. When we walk through that door, we will find that as soon as we step through to the other side, we will look at our hands, at our arms, our legs, whatever just happened to us, we will find ourselves completely intact. They cannot touch us. They cannot touch us. That is the promise. Not a hair of our head will perish. Then Jesus turns a corner. And he says in verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... Then know its desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter the city. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time, the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jesus, and this is the important thing to understand about the Olivet Discourse, and this is where some of the confusion can easily set in. Jesus is talking about two separate events here. He's talking about a time when Jerusalem 
will be surrounded by armies. The time of the days of vengeance upon Jerusalem. And he's also talking about a day when, verse 27, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. There's two events. The surrounding, the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and the appearing of the Son of Man in the clouds with the host of heaven. Those are two events that Jesus is talking about. Now, if we don't understand that there's two different events that Jesus is talking about, we will mix them up and confuse these two events. We'll apply some of the prophecies from one event to the other and vice versa, and we will have a confused picture. We have to pull those two events apart because in the mind of Jesus, they were two separate events. The siege and destruction of Jerusalem and the appearing of the Son of Man in the clouds with the hosts of heaven. These are two separate events. One event has happened already. It happened in A.D. 70 when the Roman general Titus laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem so thoroughly that they did not leave one stone upon another. It was with such violence and wrath that the Romans destroyed Jerusalem that when Titus returned to Rome and they gave him a wreath of victory to honor him for his achievement of subduing Jerusalem, Titus rejected the wreath. He wouldn't take the wreath. Why wouldn't he take the wreath? Because Titus said, it wasn't me who did that. I will not take credit for what just happened. Titus said he rejected the wreath of victory because he said he was merely an instrument of their God bringing wrath upon them. Titus understood that he was an instrument of the wrath of God. The vengeance that Jesus promises Jerusalem came upon Jerusalem in the form of Titus and his Roman armies laying siege to Jerusalem, surrounding it all around, squeezing it, killing all, enslaving all. An account so devastating that just reading 
the account of Josephus and what happened in within the walls of Jerusalem during that siege is unthinkable. Great wrath, great vengeance visited upon Jerusalem. That all happened in 70 AD, almost 2,000 years ago. Jesus prophesied that event, but that was not the only event he prophesied. He also prophesied of another event that would happen at least thousands and thousands of years later. And that's what we need to understand when we're reading through the Olivet Discourse, that these are two separate events, the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and the appearing of the Son of Man in the clouds thousands of years later. When Jesus' disciples ask him, you know, they, they're commenting on how beautiful the architecture of the temple is and the walls of Jerusalem and like isn't it isn't this nice Jesus isn't this isn't the isn't this building nice and Jesus says hey every one of these stones you see are going to be thrown down they ask what is going to be the sign of the destruction of Jerusalem Jesus gives the answer to the sign in verse 20 here is the sign that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. An army will be surrounding it. So when you see an army around its every side, you can know that the time for its destruction has come. And that's exactly what happened in AD 70. He says, he gives specific instruction to those who see Jerusalem sieged by an enemy army. He says, don't go in there. And if you are in there, try to get out if you can. And get out of town as quickly as you possibly can. Probably want to hide out in the mountains or run out into the country. Why? Because God is going to visit Jerusalem for completing the transgression, for fulfilling, filling the cup of sin. You see, all of the righteous blood shed in the earth from Abel to the blood of Jesus, God required of that generation, that generation of Jerusalem AD 70. God visited Jerusalem with vengeance and wrath for all the righteous blood that was shed in the earth. It says they would fall by the edge of the sword and that they would be led captive among the nations. And Jerusalem 
would be trampled underfoot, that there would be a dispersing, a diaspora of the Jews from Jerusalem. God would again evict the Jews from their land and from their city. Until what time? Until the times of the Gentiles would be fulfilled. Jesus knew the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans wouldn't be the end of the Jews or the end of Jerusalem. But he knew it would begin a new time. A time when the grace of God would be offered to the Gentiles. The veil over the eyes of the Jews would lead to the opening of the eyes of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles would be fulfilled. There would come a time when the time of the Gentiles would be fulfilled and then the grace of God would open the eyes of the Jewish people. And the opening of the eyes of the Jews would be the final event that would usher in the return of Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. Paul talks about this in his in his in his letters letter to the Romans. But Jesus understood that the wrath of God, the vengeance that would be visited upon Jerusalem would lead to the eviction of the Jews from their land and from their city, to a diaspora, to the nations, and a new time when the kingdom of God would be offered to the Gentiles, the times of the Gentiles. Then we read in verse 25 that there would be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what was coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So we need to understand that Jesus is talking about two times in history here. The time when Jerusalem would be sieged and destroyed, when the Jews would be evicted from their city and their nation and dispersed into the nations of the world, a time that would begin, usher in the times of the Gentiles when the kingdom of God would be offered to the Gentile nations, and then a time when they would see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. These are the two periods of time that Jesus has a message for. 
Jesus has a message for those who lived in the day of the siege of Jerusalem. He had a message for the people who saw the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. He said, hey, when you see Jerusalem sieged by an enemy army, get out of Jerusalem, head to the hills, hide out in the country, because these are the days of vengeance. So Jesus says to those living in AD 70, get out of, get out of Jerusalem. God's vengeance is being poured out. And if you're a Jew, be ready to be dispersed into the nations because the time of the Gentiles will be underway. Then there's another time in history that Jesus tells us is coming, a time when the Son of Man will appear in the clouds of heaven, when every eye will see him, and when he comes with the entire host of heaven, all of heaven's angels. You're not going to be able to miss this. Jesus says it time and again. It's not a secret thing that happens in someone's basement. It's not something that happens at at night that you wake up and go, oh my goodness, it happened and I was sleeping. He says, as lightning crosses the sky, it will be unmistakable. You will not miss the return of Jesus. It's not secret. It is public. It is appearing in the clouds. And Jesus has a message for those who are living in the days of when the Son of Man appears in the clouds. His message is this. When they come to arrest you and they put you in front of governors and kings, don't worry about what you're going to say. He says, it's not going to be you that speaks in this hour. It's going to be me. Jesus promises to speak through us in the hour when we are brought before kings and governors, and it is our opportunity to bear witness. We will be given one final opportunity to bear witness. He tells us we're going to be betrayed by all sorts of people. Whoever you can imagine is closest to you. He says, parents, brothers, relatives, friends, friends, parents, betraying each other. He tells us we will be hated by all. Hated by all. But he promises not a hair of our head will perish. And he tells us that by our endurance, by enduring, we will find life. 
as we set our eyes upon Jesus and trust him and endure, we will find that God is supplying our strength. He is supplying our life, our hope. He is our lifeline. He is our strength. If we are dependent upon our own strength, no one will survive. Jesus promises that it will be his strength and his power. In fact, in verse 36, Jesus says, tells us to stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus tells us, be praying that you have the strength to escape. How do we escape? Well, we escape by doing the will of God, by enduring in the grace of God until the very end. That's our escape. There is no other escape plan. I don't know if you have one devised. I don't know if it includes guns or whatever survival plans you might have. Jesus tells us there's one way of escape. It's enduring to the end in the grace of God. That's it. He will supply the strength. Jesus doesn't say... Be strong. Jesus says, pray for strength. If we pray for strength, if we ask God for strength, then guess who is supplying the strength? The same God that created the universe by speaking. The same God who holds all things together by the word of his power. So Jesus is speaking of two events in Luke 21. The first event he's talking about, is prophesying, is the siege and destruction of Jerusalem. He says the sign of the destruction of Jerusalem is when Jerusalem will be surrounded by its enemies. And then he tells those who are living in that time to get out of Jerusalem, head to the hills, get into the country, because there will be great wrath upon Jerusalem. All of the righteous blood shed from Abel all the way through Jesus would be visited upon that city, upon those people in that time. He says the destruction of Jerusalem would lead to a eviction of the Jewish people. They would be dispersed into the nations, and that would usher in the times of the Gentiles when the kingdom and gospel of God would be opened and offered to the Gentiles. But Jesus wasn't only speaking about the siege of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. He's also speaking about another day, a day when 
the Son of Man, Jesus, would appear in the clouds with the entire host of heaven, saints and angels coming with him. And before the days of the coming of the Son of Man, there would be a global war, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There would be unprecedented natural disasters with massive earthquakes, famines, and disease. And there would be terrifying signs in the heavens or great things happening in the sky for all to see, so much so that there would be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear, foreboding of what is coming upon the world. Jesus says that in those days there would be a final persecution that would be our our opportunity to bear witness. And Jesus promises to supply the strength to endure, and he promises to give the final witness, just like Stephen gave the final witness in the book of Acts, to bear that kind of witness before a hostile world that hates us and hates the name of Jesus. I think that's about as far as I should go today. I want to take the next episode and revisit some of these truths from Luke 21 and maybe um, venture into some other areas that would be helpful as, as we grapple with these truths. And so I guess I'm just going to kind of leave it there for now and um, bless you, the listener, I, I hope the Word of God is speaking to you, that you're being strengthened and encouraged, and that the Holy Spirit is doing a deep work um, in you, through you, blessing your ministry, blessing you with favor, um, and is, that God is speaking to you in, in new ways. And so I'm, I'm really hoping this, this podcast, that this episode is a blessing to you. Um, let me know what I missed. You can find me on Twitter. Um, Yeah, I look forward to any feedback that you have and uh, hope you uh, join me next time. That concludes this episode of Babylon Singularity. I want to thank you for tuning in. If you're looking to hear more from me, you can find me on Twitter as well as my website, BabylonSingularity.com. I've also authored a book titled Babylon available on Amazon. I look forward to hearing any thoughts or feedback, comments that you may have to help me make this show better. I do hope it's a blessing to you, and I hope that you'll tune in next time to Babylon Singularity.